welcome to the Guitar Omni Podcast. I'm Carl Woolwind of Columbus Classical Guitar. Each episode, we'll chat with a featured guest from the classical guitar world. Candid conversations, unique experiences, and career observations from the people who best know the guitar. This is your master class in life and the guitar. For more information and past episodes, please visit columbusclassicalguitar.com or see Carl Woolwind Guitarist on Facebook. So here we are with Steve Aaron, um, who is, I, I knew him as the, the director of the guitar program at University of Akron when I first met him. And, and since then, he started teaching at Oberlin University. It's, it's Oberlin College, isn't it? Oberlin yes. College. I, I always get confused with that. So, and uh, you've, you've, you were at Akron for a long time. Um, and then you're, you're officially retired from, from that position, correct? Yeah, so Akron, uh, I began teaching there in 1981 and wow. I retired after 34 years in 2015. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And, and you've been at Oberlin at least since, I want to say, like the early 90s. Yes, I started there in 92. So There we go. My memory served me well. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've known you since about that time, because when, when I was a student at, with John at CIM, you guys lived like a, just a couple blocks away from each other. And right. you, know, you, you bring time guest time. artists in for Akron, staying at your place. And we would go to your house and, and, and take lessons and, and from, yes. from, from those artists. And you know, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was an interesting it was an interesting time, I thought. It was, you know, it was, it was really cool. area of guitar activity up there. Yeah. It was great. So... And you mentioned before we before we started talking, you mentioned you you, you kind of you slowed down a bit and you've been taking a break. I'm sure part of that was was uh, kind of inspired by a pandemia and whatnot. Uh, my just sort of slowing things down a little had nothing to do with that because it preceded the oh, pandemic. Okay. But uh, the timing was excellent for that, <laughs> as it turned out. I mean, I had just done a project that took a lot of energy and uh, kind of felt like okay, that was. Uh, enough for right now in terms of, uh, in, you know, intense practicing and all the different elements of the work we do. And so I just sort of set it down for a little bit, you know, obviously continuing teaching and my dedication to my students has unchanged, but in terms of my private uh, musical projects, I just took a little holiday. And uh, so sometimes we need a break. Sure. Is that, is that something, I mean, I don't, I don't want to, uh, uh, be, be rude about age or anything, but you, you've, you've had a long and, and prosperous career. Um, is that something you've done in the past as well? Or, or is this, is this, I've always known you to be like, just go, 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 go. You've always got like tons of stuff going on and, and, and like really going after it hard. And, and, you know, it's, it's, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> well, it's like, I just, feel like we, you know, we all sort of doing the same thing after a fashion. I mean, um, yeah, I think there have been times in the past where I've set the guitar in the case and left it there for a matter of months, but usually it's dictated by some external factor, like right. something was going on in my life that just just had to focus on that for a, a little time. And and so I, I was aware, uh, I'm aware uh, fully that 
just because you're not playing every day doesn't mean you forgot how to play. You know, right. it's a, it's like you pick it up and it's all still there. You know, right. you, can, uh, you might not remember all your pieces equally well until you've right. played them a few times, but um, it makes no difference. You know, we, right. we know how to play our instruments. We've been doing this for a long time. So um, it feels like the natural ebb and flow of life. You know, like you just um, get incredibly dedicated and then immersed in something for a while and then you turn your attention to something different. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think there's, there's something super healthy about that too, you know, and then I, I go through these periods where, you know, especially as, as regards like really concentrating on, on solo rep where, you know, I, I get burnt out by it and I like, I want to do something else. I want to do something, you know, different. And, and I've, I've spent a lot of time doing chamber music and, and the, the, the broke guitar stuff. And I got, got involved with the flamenco dancer, um, well, right. I mean, your is a perfect example. I mean, and you play non-classical music right. all the time and play in collaboration with other people. So it's like it really stays fresh when you constantly bouncing, you know, kind of one intense style of interaction with the instrument or with music against a different one. Right. And it really keeps it fresh. I think yeah. that's. Well, I, think, I think you, I think you, you you're, you're being very kind. I think I'm just easily bored and, and easily <laughs> distracted. <laughs> oh, look, something shiny over there. Let's do this. <laughs> no, I, what, what, what I've found is, is it's interesting because when I first started doing that sort of thing, you know, I, I worried about the solo playing, you know, you've concentrated on it in such a focused way for so long and I worried about it. It's like, oh, you know, I, I need to make sure I, I, I focus on that. And what I found is that, like, over time, I'll start to miss it, right? And that's the time to get back into it. And and it's and it really kind of um, injects it with this energy that that you know is really important. I think. Well, and then when I'm done with it, I'll say, hey, you know, I'll, I'll I'll set that aside and do something else for a while, and then I'll start to miss it, or I'll get an idea and say, hey, yeah, I want to pursue this kind of thing. And I think that's really that's it's it's a great way for me to to kind of plan that and, 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 and work with it, not worry about it. You know, I think like, there's, there's well, so much. We, uh, we're talking the same language here. And um, certainly we're very lucky to be in a business that offers the kind of variety yeah. of activity that ours does. I mean, right. you know, I'm painting it in a very glossy way. Like a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people would prefer to have you know, something <laughs> a little more steady and reliable and with uh, fewer changes or right-hand turns. But um uh, you know, that's a benefit, I think, for us psychologically. And, yeah. you know, for me, uh, is it the same as you just mentioned, uh, you know, focusing on solo music uh, leads me to always sort of pine for playing chamber music. And, right. and uh, you know, playing music written by other people makes me want to look at my own ideas. And right. you know, you know, the grass always tends to be a little greener on the other side after you're doing something for a while. And um, we have this sort of freedom um, to be able to pursue those interests. Yeah, to a certain extent, at least I have, and I've been yeah. very lucky to have been able to. So, right. And in, in terms of chamber music, I, I know that you've you've had a, a longstanding duo with Jane Berkner, uh, flutist, who was at the University of Akron as well. You guys are fantastic. I, I I've heard you many times, and, and uh, it's, it's a the the recording is awesome, and yeah, it's it's great. I just I saw you play with a string quartet um, a couple of years ago. Right. Um, the Austrian composer, I can't remember. Uh, Rabai? Uh, Rabai, yeah. Yeah, okay. I think that was the one with the flute also, the flute, guitar, and... Yes, that's right, that's right. Um, and many, many years ago, 
uh, I remember seeing you play with a marimbist, which I just thought was fantastic. What a well, great combination that was. There, it? <laughs> um, so, I mean, there's there's three collaborations that I know about. What, are there any that I don't know about? Oh, and you've you've done the recordings with your wife and uh, researching the the um, parlor songs and that kind of thing. Right. right? So I think um, over the course of my life, I've done more collaborations with singers than any other particular. Okay. Uh, but um, variety of different singers over the years. And so I've really covered that repertoire. Uh, yeah. but, but in terms of uh, chamber music, uh, yeah, I had a longstanding, and yeah, I still have this relationship with Jane Berkner where, you know, we've got the flute and guitar duo repertoire and um, love doing that. But I tend to think of it as more an opportunity for me to engage in social interaction with my colleagues on the faculty and, yeah. Uh, it's like the best way to get to know people better. You know, a lot of times I find uh, I live about an hour from Oberlin. I don't stay in town. You know, I just drive right. into my guys and drive home. And um, so I, a lot of times they're just, I feel like I don't get enough time to get to know my colleagues. And sometimes new people come on the faculty and I haven't even met them and half the year has gone by, you know, it right. feels that way. So I feel like the best way to get to know uh, your colleagues is to play music with them. And sure. uh, so I've always done that both at Akron and at Oberlin. And, and of course, that's a really enriching thing. And you just you sort of think of who the person is you'd like to play some music with. And then you find some music. And, yeah. play, you know. and so I've done a lot of chamber music programs where I in, have several faculty members, one after another, joining me on stage and sometimes uh, digging in a little deeper with one person. So a little right. bit of both. That's great. That's very cool. And, and and at the same time, you're you're. I think you're setting a, a fine example for your students. You know, I think you're, you're modeling that and modeling that 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 idea of, you know, there's there's a lot more to do than just play the solo repertoire and and you know be that guy in the tuxedo who walks out on stage all alone. You know, and and that that whole the mythology around that. I think that's, well, a, that's important. Odin always been really dedicated to chamber music and uh, I think going all the way back to the beginning when I first started teaching uh, as a young guy at University of Akron I started a guitar orchestra okay. and um, I thought well this guitar students need to learn how to play under a baton was my idea you know interesting and we called it the guitar orchestra of course ha Fantastic. And, uh, we actually bought um, half a dozen or 10, I can't remember now, little octave, little uh, children's guitars, and we strung them with fish line and made them octave higher. So we had Fantastic. the octave guitars, we had the regular guitars, and then I would have one guy playing like an electric bass over in the corner. Okay. You know, and we would set up with like the octave guitars would be like on a riser and the regular guitars would be down below. It looked very Hollywood, you know. Oh, and gosh, that's fantastic. I did all the arrangements myself. I dedicated a lot of time to making these elaborate arrangements. I was quite excited by this process. But after a few years, maybe two or three years, I started to feel like the students weren't getting enough uh, mixed chamber music experience because we only had a certain number of hours a week dedicated to guitar ensemble. Right. I really wasn't interested so much in spending that time having them do trios and quartets. I just right. I sort of decided, let's get them together with the singers and the flutists. Sure, and absolutely. And so um, I dropped the guitar orchestra and uh, we dedicated our time ever since, really. My career has been dedicated almost exclusively to mixed chamber music, but I never love it. I never like forbid students to form guitar duos because right. guitar duos are fun and there's a lot of yeah, good repertoire. And even guitar quartet, as you know, there's a lot of good repertoire now, particularly thanks to LA Quartet and 
Right. And uh, the Romero's originally. And, and so there is um, there is some repertoire, although it's not my favorite thing to teach, because I feel like the guitars, when they're playing with one another, they tend to reinforce one another's weaknesses <laughs> as, as, rather than elevate one another into new. You're <laughs> so diplomatic. I, would, I was sitting here thinking it's like the blind leading the blind. It's like right. it's a room full of idiots, like teaching one another how to be idiots. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a self-loathing guitarist, though. I have, I have, you know, I, I, but it's, it's, it's these fundamental things that guitarists often come to late, you know, yeah. and and whereas as other instruments with with really finely established pedagogies, you know, especially if somebody's learning as a child, they're they're playing high quality music from a very young age with other musicians and really good instruction, yes. you know, and and it's not that that doesn't happen in the guitar world, but it's 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 far less frequent, I guess. Well, it's it's a, because, uh, over the course of my career, you know, which has been now pushing 40 years of it, you know, I've seen an evolution uh, at the beginnings. The pedagogy was just dismal, you know, yeah. and um, I, I might say uh, it not universally dismal, but almost, you know, right. it was pretty bad. <laughs> well, there, there was, there were little pockets yeah. that people could go to and they had well, to search them out. Teachers, yeah. but, but the quality and the character of the, of the, of the pedagogy itself was uh, fairly uninformed, I think. And as time passed, it's gotten better and better. And nowadays, um, I don't think there's really much difference between the higher level guitar teachers and what's happening in studios of uh, violin teachers and piano teachers. Sure. But certainly historically, there's been this sort of deficit among the guitarists. And uh, I felt like uh, without question, if you sit a guitarist down with a violinist, um, the, so often the violinist will just look at the guitarist like, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> that you would misunderstand the, the character of that phrase or, or the dynamic shape of that cadence or, yeah. or the way to you know, execute that ornament or just whatever it is, just the language. I, I, I know that look very well. <laughs> and then you, know, you, you sit them down with a singer and they blast through where the singer's going to take a breath and the singer looks right. at them and says, you know, I have to breathe. I mean, what are you yeah. doing? And it's after a few runs uh, through with various kinds of instruments and singers, they learn so much about how music is actually, um, how it lives and um, so, so much in a different way than it would live in their ears had they not had that experience. And we sit right. there without another person. And so we don't ever have to play the rhythm correctly. You know, like it right. just never matters because we're just... Yep. By yourself. <laughs> you ignore the metronome and who's going to know, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whereas when you're playing with others, your ears have to be paying attention. And, and it's not just correctly, but, you know, musically and following musical shapes dictated by, say, the, the, the way the bow changes direction on the cello and, and the way the singers need to grab air or the, or the woodwind players need to grab air between the phrases. And, right. and, uh, and that's all aside from stylistic considerations. You know, guitars have a tendency to embrace uh the the Bach and then they they skip about a hundred years and then they they like <laughs> the Spanish repertoire and the Latin American repertoire particularly the stuff that sounds most pop and then right. um, and then we'll go to modern music particularly um music that's influenced by rock and jazz and blues you know Leo Brower stands out of course, of course. and um but then there are true modernists where guitarists are really interested in in new music and that's super but I think uh the what you might call a, the great classical tradition that is the backbone of what everyone else is playing 
classical and romantic music. Absolutely. Understudied and underappreciated and underprogrammed by the guitarists. I mean, this isn't everybody, but you know, this tends to happen. So in my teaching, I, I definitely see to it that they're familiar with the styles. And when they play with other instruments, they not only um, find themselves playing uh, those styles sometimes, but they play composers they wouldn't otherwise have access to. So, you know, with singers out, now they're playing music by Schubert. And like, well, he's such a fantastic composer. But if you've never played music by Schubert, you haven't lived, you know, and uh, and so on. You know, that's just an example. Yeah, I I agree with you 100% on that. And the other, the other component of that, that I think is really critical to address is, is the listening, you know, and, and, and this, this, this pandemic, not pandemic, this, this epidemic that we have of, of, uh, you know, guitarists only listening to other guitarists, right. you know, right. guitar composers. It's like, would you stop doing that? Would you, would you, for the love of God, go listen to a string quartet, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, when I have a student now who's really a great listener and he's always introducing me to things I didn't, I hadn't heard before. I say, have oh, you heard cool. Have you heard this incredible Bach arrangement of a Vivaldi piece that he made for organ? I want to arrange it for guitar. Oh, fantastic. Wow, that's fantastic. You know, man after my own heart. And, and, um, but not all of them will do that. They have to be right. led to it in some capacity. And so, um, you know, I think YouTube and the um, incredible education it offers us is, is certainly a game changer for everybody in the industry. Sure. But, you know, it has its little potholes you can drive your wheel into. (laughs) You know, and um, one of the things I I like to tell them, I don't know how uh, consistently they take my advice. I mean, obviously, (laughs) that's always open to question. But I might say, listen to this piece uh, on YouTube, but don't listen to one person play it. Find at least 10 recordings of it. You know, if it's a popular piece, that's no problem. If it's a more arcane piece. Just at least find more than one and always make a note of who you're listening to. Don't just let it be, oh, some guy, oh, some woman. Right. And, you, know, you should know who it is because sometimes they're the most brilliant players ever. And it's next to some guy in his pajamas. And it's like, well, you know, we don't want to hold them on equal. We want to sort of know the difference. Like this yes. person's a humongous career and won every competition. And this person, you know, maybe not. So. Um, sometimes the person we haven't heard of before is fantastic, but we should take a note of who we're listening to and make a note of who you like and who you don't like. And, and if you're diligent, why, you know, and then, and then, so, you know, like one person will play it super, super fast with no breaths. Some person, someone else will play it incredibly slow. Someone else will, you know, really move the rhythm left and right with all kinds of rubato and someone else will do something, you know, a third. And the more people you listen to, you realize it starts to dawn on you if you're paying attention. Uh, the vast array of possibilities that we can right. bring in our interpretations to the music we're playing. And if you don't do that, then you just assume the way that guy plays it is the way it goes, you know, like, right. Oh, that's how it goes. And then you just yeah. try to copy that. And uh, we try to avoid that. That's, I think that's great. That's I like, I like that very much. Yeah. I, I, when I was, when I was still teaching um, at Otterbein, I, I, it took me a while to realize that was, that's what was happening is because I would tell my students, Oh, you know, listen to this recording, listen to, you know, or, or, you know, you need to hear a recording of this. And they would come back with just the wackiest stuff. And I thought, why are you playing like that? And you told me to listen to the recording. And it took me a long time to realize that I needed to make sure that I asked them which recording they were listening to and where they found it, you know? And, and yeah, it was the same thing. It was like, well, there's this guy sitting on his bed, you know? (laughs) 
<laughs> and he plays it like this, and it's like, and that's like, the only one you listen to. It's also like the telephone game. You're like, some right, of course. And you try to copy it, but you don't really quite get it right. So you misinterpret right. someone's interpretation. And at that point, you're getting a little far from the source, particularly if the interpretation is highly idiosyncratic and somebody's doing right. you know, some pretty wild stuff. And then you misinterpret that because you don't really understand what they're doing. <laughs> and then you're really <laughs> at all. Yeah, I, I like the idea of like the, averaging that out numerically, though. I mean, if you yeah. if you if you ten is ten's probably a great number for for that. That's, I mean, that's, it takes yeah, time, but idea. you know, a lot of times students are spending time listening to things on YouTube, and so it can right. be used productively. And I think it's it's a powerful learning tool. Lord, Lord, I mean, when I was uh, an undergraduate, um, we would drive hours and hours to see a guitarist play. It's like, right. We just had, had no way of seeing people other than the ones who are in our own little program, in our own bubble. And so I remember, um, you know, very long car trips to uh, mm -hmm. see anybody. And this sort of having it at your fingertips at all times uh, is just uh, a different world. But, it makes my head uh, spin. I, 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 can't, I can't take it all in. I, I just it, I, I, I haven't really been able. And this has probably been going on a decade. You know, I still... It's like what I can do this? Wow! And and just processing that and and getting out of the, the that habit, like you said, you know, yeah, driving hours to go. I remember driving, you know, distances to go to a record store, you know, because they had the recording that I I was interested in, and you know, I tracked it down by phone. And it was like, oh, okay, it's the only place I can find it. I guess I'll drive a couple hours and pick up that recording. You know? like, <laughs> technology has made all of that sort of available all the time now. Uh, is it leads to me to feel like the students shouldn't really have an excuse for not, <laughs> not putting it together. You know, like, so many <laughs> yet they still don't do it. <laughs> Good Lord. But at the same time, you know, like we want to encourage them to, you know, take their eyes off the screen. Sometimes it's, like, right. it's like, I don't want to be the one who says, Hey, go spend six more hours staring at a screen, you know? <laughs> Sure, sure. Have, have you noticed? I mean, again, you've been teaching. You've been teaching at, at Oberlin since since the early '90s. So that's that's you know that's thirty years, right? Well, I'm, um, you know, it's like twenty twenty some years. Yeah, twenty eight years, twenty nine. Wow. One of the things that I was noticing towards towards the end of of my my academic tenure was there was a there was a real generational shift, like in in the past. I'd say past five to seven years. Um, you know, I'm I, like seeing, seeing a real difference in the attitudes of the students, um, the things that they knew, the things that they focused on. And in a way I, I was, I was very hopeful, you know, cause I thought these people are really good people and they've, they've spent their youth somehow figuring out how to be really good people. Um, good. but, but one of the things that I noticed before that, uh, was was this idea of, of work ethic and, and work habits and, and this kind of thing. And I'm, I'm just curious, you know, as with somebody that, that has your breadth of experience in, in, in teaching young people, what, you know, what your observations might might be in, in, on that? Well, I, I tell you, it's an easy, um, it's easy for me to say, oh, the work ethic has gotten worse. But I think it's too simple in a way. It's like, yeah. um, to my mind, um, it's like comparing apples to oranges because I think the students I tend to get now um, are so much better trained than the students I had, let's say, earlier. Really? Yes, because the um, there are so many great programs that are training uh, high, uh, kids in junior high school and high school and even younger. Great. Um, 
that a lot of times they're coming to me, their technique is like, I don't want to say fully formed, but it's pretty darn good. You know, they're making huh. great, they can do anything. They sight read like brilliantly. They've played tons wow. of repertoire. They've performed a lot. They're very astute. They're used to being around professional. It's like all this is in place. It's like they're coming to me at the level where I would have expected maybe an incoming master's degree candidate. Sure, sure. Or, or even doctoral candidate because um, they tend to be very well informed. Now, this isn't universal. Interesting. But it's, it's, I would say, the majority. Now, mind you, I'm at a conservatory. Um, right. This may not be the case at, at uh, programs that maybe attract students who don't have as much. I don't know. There's a range. But it just seems like there are so many uh, great training programs now that um, for me to think about work ethic, it's like, okay, well, uh, you don't have to necessarily do an hour to an hour and a half of arpeggios and things because your technique is so good already. It's like, right. yes, you need to work on technique still, maybe some other more refined elements or, or elevated issues relating to technique, but we're more involved in repertoire and interpretation and style yeah. and, and uh, you know, career building related activities. Sure. And so um, they seem to put in plenty of time uh, by and large, of course, it's always a question uh, what they're doing when they're not under my eyes, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. I would love for them to do more. You know, I think, I think the teacher's uh, goal is always to see the students practice more. But um, I do think that because the kids I'm actually working with seem uh, kind of farther along on the path. Yeah. That's uh, good to hear. I'm, I'm, that makes me really happy to hear that. Urgent uh, question. A question is that is that, how long has it been that way do you think i mean did you see a, a real shift in that or has it been kind of a gradual change or it's definitely been gradual but uh certainly um since i started working in oberlin um i've found that uh it was possible to uh find 18 year olds who already knew how to play like um this was always the question like at the university of akron when i started um you know there were no students and you know, it was just a very small program. And I, I decided that um, pressed uh, specifically by the administration to build the program because they were very, very interested in the numbers being larger. You know, they were right. uh, as a state institution. The more people enrolled, the better it was. And of all course. that. Right. So yeah. I was encouraged to build my numbers. And, and so I did all the things uh, we do in the industry to try to draw attention to it, which is fine. But one of the backbones of the process, and it was, I was very successful in doing this, was to was that I decided that in the audition, my main concern was, A, do they have a guitar? B, do they have a pulse? You know, it's like, <laughs> yes, yes. You're in. Now you're, now you're classical guitar performance major, you know. Right. And that, that may seem just idiotic on the face of it, but I know how to teach. It's like I can teach them how to play. And yeah. give me a kid who's got some enthusiasm, who's got some ambition, who's willing to do what I tell him to do, and uh, he's got a little time in the day to do it. And at the end of the year, they can play pretty well. And by the end of four years, you know, these guys could really play. Right. And um, now, not everybody who got into the program under those in that kind of a rubric, you know, where you're really not demanding right. much before they come, not everybody stuck with it. So there's a bit of fall off. There's a bit of churn in the program. But, um, you know, over the long haul, I had tons of great players and many of them finished the program and went on to have careers in music. But that's not what I was what I was doing in Oberlin, because at Oberlin, right. at the very beginning, I had guys who usually had some training already. So you know, the audition process meant more, you know, you might say. And it was so it was more uh, exclusive. And so 
you know, it's kind of doing a different thing. I was just doing upper level training from the beginning. But re remember, um, this is definitely an evolution. So by the time we got to the early 2000s, and I decided to host my second GFA festival in. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, at Oberlin. You know, I had done one back in the late 80s in Akron. We'll yeah. talk about With that. With Julian Bream. Yeah, we can talk about that. that that's, 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 yeah, we have to talk about that. <laughs> is that at that GFA in Oberlin in 2005, I insisted to the board of directors, uh, to the uh, executive committee, um, that I wanted to have the first ever GFA competition dedicated to the pre-collegiate age uh, guitarists. Mm. They had never done it before then. And they thought, are, you, are we going to have enough people enter? Are they going to be good enough? And I said, look, don't worry. This is going to be great. Trust me. And they said, okay, I was running it back then. That was the last festival or one of the last festivals in which the guy who's directing the festival had kind of carte blanche to do whatever. Right. You know? so, so I said, I want to do that. They signed off on it. And this youth guitar competition, you could hear the sound of 500 jaws falling down and smacking against chests. And people <laughs> listened to the sound, the quality of the players in this competition. It was astonishing. And of yeah. course, we, we've come to take this for granted now that the high school right. players are fantastic. It's, you know? it's, it's, yeah, it's astonishing. It, like, but even mind, then, mind blowing. It was, yeah. it was happening. And, um, it was, you know, we felt really comfortable and, uh, obviously, um, uh, lucky to have such great kids. Maybe not lucky. It was just part of the, the zeitgeist at the time, but sure. the kids were so good that the prizes that were handed out were done. So with pride, you know, right. and, and the kids were every bit as good as the collegiate artist or the you know uh, professional artist level competition, and they've kept that ever since and added even younger levels. You know, so um, no, were you surprised by that, or, or did you know that that was going to happen? Well, I, I wasn't sure how many would apply, okay. but I knew that when we were listening to the finals, there would be great playing. I mean, I, it's yeah. not like I had my eye on specific kids or anything. I just knew that there were great players because I'd seen they them were, come. You knew they were out there, yeah. Okay, but like, like not only that they were coming to. Oberlin. Remember, I was seeing the same kids auditioning that um, they were seeing at Peabody and Eastman and University of, of Southern California and San Francisco Conservatory and, and Cleveland Institute. Like the same group of kids each year would audition to all these same schools. So right. I was in that pool and I was very uh, lucky and d delighted to be counted among those. You know, obviously that's a that's great company to be keeping. Sure. They, obviously, they didn't all come to Oberlin, but um I knew what these kids could play like. Like Interesting. these are yeah. talented players. And, you know, some of them landed with Nick up at Eastman. Some of them landed, you know, say with Bill Kanengeiser. And some of them went over there and some of them went over here. But right. um, I knew what the sort of what the pool was each year yeah. in the early 90s. And there was no question in my mind that the pool was really impressive. Interesting. Yeah. That's great. That's that's that's. And listen, I didn't mean to to diss the uh, incoming well, student Akron earlier. You know, it was more like a, a general observation. No, I I, I understand. Sure. I also got students at Akron who were trained before coming and who could play very well. Uh, it's it was a different a, environment. Different thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely a different environment. You know, and 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 I understand that. It made me made, made me think of one of the things that Christopher Berg said to me um, when I was a student with him. He said, you know. Because I was the time that I was there, there there were just a handful of undergraduates who had studied seriously before going. You know, it was it was a typical yeah. situation right. where you know six months before an audition, 
you know, somebody takes some classical guitar lessons because they want to get into school. And, and the way he described it, he said, you know, I, I set the bar pretty low to get in, you know, and it has more to do with somebody's personality and their willingness to communicate and, and their flexibility. Because I know that if, if, if I have a student that, that is dedicated and, and for, for me, I always thought one of the things that was great about working with students of that age is they have so much energy. And if you can get that energy focused on something like in a concentrated way, they're unstoppable. I mean, they, they, they really can accomplish so much, you know, with, with all of that energy. And, but he said, you know, it's, it's like, it's easy to get in, but yeah, you're not, everybody is going to make it through the program. And right. those who do, there are standards. It's, you know, I'm, just, I'm not letting anybody get, out. You the know? standards get much higher with each passing year. And, you know, sure. they tend to self-select after a bit, like right. um, some of the freshmen, they'll make it to the end of the freshman year, but they'll see what's coming and they just decide, okay, this isn't for me. This is real work. I didn't think it was real work. I thought I was just playing the guitar, you know? Right, <laughs> right. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I always thought it was really important for me to be honest with those students about, you know, I, I never tried to keep talk anybody to staying in the program. It was always like, no. you know, I just wanted to be transparent about what, what was expected, what they're looking at down the road. You know, it's not for everybody and that's fine. Um, but I never, yeah, I never, I never wanted to be in that situation where I felt like somebody was finishing just because they had to, they weren't really interested in doing it. They weren't really interested in pursuing anything. Um, you know, and then I, I, I found that challenging, honestly. I mean, it's, 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 I've talked to, talked to a number of people about this because you have to deal with this issue of, okay, what am I preparing these young people for, you know? for the rest of their lives. Right. You know, well, they're, they're the, like the ethics of being a music teacher. You, know? <laughs> you start right. to look at the big picture, like, Oh my God, I'm setting this guy up for failure or something. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think, um, you know, we have to allow also the, for the possibility that um, these students are individual adults and they have agency in their lives and yes. they're capable of making observations and decisions. You know, it's like, they're not slave to it and, you know, they're not doing it under duress. Um, you know, for my students um, who I think maybe don't have as likely a path as a professional musician, I am sometimes proved wrong. Right. Like these are sometimes the guys who actually do have careers yeah. in music later. It's just unpredictable. And yeah. it has to do with uh, a lot of factors uh, over uh, above and beyond what we're doing in the guitar studios. Like what is their personality like? What is their family support system like? What is their um, a sort of ability to seize opportunity when they see it? Their sort of entrepreneurial spirit. And mm -hmm. uh, to what extent is luck going to play a role in their lives? You know, because uh, it's just so unpredictable. Sure. And I can remember, uh, you know, sort of biting my lip later on with one guy I had who I, um, I really tried to talk him out of chasing the doctorate. You know, I thought, well, he did the, the undergraduate, finished his undergraduate with me, he transferred in. This is Akron. And then he did, stayed and he did his master's with me. And he was very good. But I didn't think he was sort of the virtuoso kind of player. You know, and I and he says, I'm going to get my doc, my DMA. And I was like, I don't know. That's the fun. <laughs> DMA. Are you sure? Yeah. Well, so he went through and he did the DMA, finished the whole thing. And I was like flabbergasted that he finished it. But I thought, oh, what a waste of four years for that guy. You know, it's totally bad for him. And wouldn't you know, he's one of a very small number of alumni of mine who's now a tenured university professor full time. Teaching guitar. Teaching guitar. Amazing. At a university. Yeah. It's like, 
I don't know. It's like I'm not really in the right place to make the big judgment. So if right. they study music, it's like who am I to tell them not to in a way? Of course. That's in a way what I – now, look, if they come to me and they, they ask directly, what are my job prospects? Then we have the big conversation. You know, like right. – uh, I'm down with the big conversation. Uh, and we'll talk about, you know, all the different kinds of employment in the field. I know about it. I, I even ha had a festival once in the early 90s called Classical Guitar Career Fest. I don't know if you remember this. Wow. I um, don't remember that. I, I, I should have gone to that. <laughs> I remember back in 92, and I remember a lot of my colleagues laughed at me. Career Fest? Ha ha. Is this like some kind right. of comedy routine? <laughs> uh, like, okay, so one guy's talking about, um, you know, being uh, – uh, working for uh, one of the electric guitar manufacturers as a, you know, like hawking instruments. Another guy's talking about building instruments and being a luthier. Another guy's talking about opening his own music store and selling stuff. Another guy's talking about starting his home studio and hiring other teachers and being in charge of the whole thing. And then, of course, we talk about university positions. We talk about public school positions. We talk about, uh, you know, playing concerts. We talk about playing gigs, being a wedding, you know, sort of background music, we recording and publishing. And I had different people come in and give lectures for each of these areas. It was really quite a lot of fun. But, you know, it's not like everybody had a full-time job at the end of the week. Of course. Right, but, uh, right. Well, I think, I think in a lot of those situations, it's, it's just, it's opening people's minds to think about framing framing the idea of a career in a different way right and for me and i i you know I'm, it wasn't necessarily by design that this happened but you know i've i've always existed kind of as as a gigging musician right i, I i'll i'll have 17 things happening at once right. and i'm able to live off of that because it's 17 different sources of income and there's a there's a there's a funny freedom about it too because like you know, I, I, I think I think about one of my one of my private students whose husband worked for um, I think it was Borden. I don't know. He, he was he was in logistics and he had had, you know, a 30, 35, 40 year year long career and then got laid off, you know, and, and everything, all the resources that they had available to them came from that one source. And when that that went away, I mean, here were people towards retirement age and, you know, hung out to dry and. And one of the things I've always thought about is like, you know, I, you know, it's not like I'm, I'm, I'm becoming wealthy over here or anything, but I've, I've taken care of myself. I've, I've, I've been responsible with my life financially and, and, you know, the, the sources come and go and that's okay because I don't necessarily rely on any one of them so heavily that I can't live without it. You know, as long well, as I have several another, of them. And another way to put it is that you're, you know, from a career standpoint, you're diversified and, yeah. Um, I like that word. Yeah, that sounds really impressive. <laughs> you're protected from, um, you know, like a, a disaster in one arena because you have other arenas. Right. But, but what it does, um, distinct from um, the very, very lucky path I found myself on, is that it puts the burden on you to manage your money. And I think one of the great uh, failures of the American education system is that they don't teach kids how to manage money. Um, and a lot of parents don't teach their kids how to manage money. Money is like a taboo subject and right. they prefer not talking about how much they have and where it is and what they've done with it and, and the why. So it's very hard to learn unless you are sort of one of those very few who just realizes this up front and does a bunch of research and reads on it or have, is lucky enough to have a friend to talk. But if you don't start setting aside money and investing from the very beginning yeah. uh, as a freelancer, you know, 
um, your prospects long term are, are just much dimmed compared to what they would be if you thought of it early on. So I feel like anybody who follows that path, it's like wh whoever are their friends, help them sort that out early because sure. it makes a huge difference long term. And, you it's, know, because I just got so lucky to get hired as a full time job like that was just kind of taking care of. I was part of the state retirement system and you know, I was yeah. retirement and I didn't really have to give it a thought. Um, but I understand how lucky I was, you know. Yeah. Do you do you think that there's? I mean, it seems to me just if, just from my point of view and 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 what I saw when when I was a student getting trained and 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 whatnot. Everybody that I studied with and and traveled to study with and studied with in programs and whatnot, and everybody that I thought about studying with, they were all full timers. You know, I mean, they, they, these are these are these were people that had a full time job around the same age, you know, and and it just seemed to me and they all got their jobs around the same time. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it what it looked like to me is like there, there must have been an explosion of interest in getting full time guitar professors in, in this really narrow window of time. And that's when all these people got their jobs. Well, it, is. It, it was part of a, an what was going on with that? What, what was the, you know, how did that happen? I mean, I, I wasn't there. I don't know. <laughs> all in the same window, but there was a period in the 1980s when the economy was expanding quite a bit. And um, there was this sort of um, impulse to, to follow the trend and expand. And I got hired at the university of Akron in 1981. And okay. wow. uh, the guy who preceded me, was part-time. And so, okay. you know, they so there decided, was a program before you, yeah, there was a part-time. Okay. You know, there was, they decided they wanted to have a full-time teacher on every musical instrument in the school of music. And okay. you know, this is like sort of like a comprehensive, it's a logical thing to do. But of course, in a, a school of music, um, some of the instruments don't have a natural affinity for having a full studio, like bassoon is sure, problematic. You know, sometimes oboe is problematic. Uh, you know, there are certain instruments. There aren't as many seats for them in the orchestra and the band, let's say. And so there aren't as there isn't as much work for them. And so we got a full time harp person, a full time organ, full time oboe. You know, every single instrument, and guitar was wow. just in there. And then over the course of the, my career, little by little, they started right. dropping off. And like it's not sustainable, right? It's not yeah. sustainable. So. So eventually, you know, you're down to a part-time guy in this area, part-time guy in this area. But um, there was definitely a period when it was like expand, expand. And I think that was reflected in a lot of institutions yeah. around the country, although it's not uniform, you know. You just think it was a reflection of what was going on in the general economy then, you know, prosper, prosperity yeah, was... I mean, there's a local component. I mean, so for instance, I worked at a state college, and so um, the state economic circumstances were the most you know, the, the biggest driving factor. But there was sort of a mood or a state of mind that the economy was expanding. And so it was, a, it was the way people were thinking. You know, it was later on, it's all, uh, it's all sort of contract, contract, contract. You know, how many people can we fire and then pay somebody one-tenth of what they were getting paid to do the same amount of work and uh, have no benefits? You know, it's more like that stuff. <laughs> I that's that was that was that's when I hit the market. <laughs> Very sad thing. I, um, but you know, conversely, like when it goes down here, it goes up somewhere else. You know, right. it's, 
it doesn't, it's not universal across the entire nation. The country's way too big for that. It's like right. there are definitely economic pockets of strength, economic pockets of, um, of where it's dipping and doing worse. And so there's no um, way to sort of make broad generalizations about it. Sure. But for instance, if you're in an area where just the economy is suffering or a state that's really got a bad budget and they refuse to raise taxes and there's just no money for it and you can see the writing on the wall, you know, not everybody's free to pick up and go somewhere else. But somewhere else, it's better. You know, like if there are opportunities somewhere else. Sure. I tend to think about this in, in the uh, arena of jobs at in the public schools. Okay. So in some states in the country, um, the school boards statewide have embraced the notion of full-time guitar teachers as part of the music staffing in the right. junior high and high schools, and they're teaching ensembles, you know? Yes. Uh, just like band, just like choir, just like orchestra. Mm -hmm. And so guitar ensemble becomes one of the four ensembles in these schools. And these ensembles, of course, are enormously popular. I don't have to explain right. why. But um, and then there are increasing number of uh, really terrific resources for the teachers of these courses. And, uh, um, you know, particularly um, from the uh, Guitar Curriculum Project at Austin Classical Guitar in Texas. Right. Um, Oberlin alumnus Matt Hinsley has... Uh -huh. a who, who, by the way, is probably the second most talked about person on my podcast after you, sir. <laughs> Very much. <laughs> your name, your name has popped up in so many podcasts. You know, it, it, I think pretty much every single one, like somehow you, you, you've come up... Um, well, that's I know we, we we travel in similar circles sometimes, you know, just geographically that's going to happen. Right. So we know yeah. a lot of the same people and everything. But I just it's yeah, it's it's astonishing. It's like you you are you are the you are the guy. And then and Matt is a close second. <laughs> I'm surprised to you. I'm delighted to hear that. And and I couldn't be more proud of Matt, who's just proven himself to be a, a true leader in the field and in so yeah. many ways and now is doing a lot to help. Uh, you know, train and inspire other people to follow his uh, example there in Austin. He's become one of maybe he amazing. the single biggest employer of guitarists in the country, you know, with all the all the efforts uh, there at Austin and not to mention the uh, maybe employment that's come about as a result of uh, their work uh, more far and wide. But what I was talking about the, the public school teaching opportunities and right. what vexes me so much here in Ohio is that uh, this has not caught on here. Uh, the, there hasn't been a comparable movement among um, school administrators in this state. Uh, maybe there's a pocket here or there, but I'm not aware of them. I'm talking about full-time employment, not you know a guy who comes in after school and right. sits and teaches private lessons. I'm talking about the real deal. And you know, we're where uh, our graduates from these um, guitar programs right. can have viable employment in a place where it's reliable from year to year. They have a pension. Yep. They health benefits and they're teaching music they're teaching guitar they're they're interacting with their colleagues and then you know they have the other benefits of being a music teacher they get vacations and they have time at night to play guitar and whatever so um, i find that uh you know, uh, what started me on this was the idea of leaving and going where the jobs are. But, right. you know, like you know, maybe it's Virginia or North Carolina or maybe it's New Mexico or Texas or right. uh, other states where this is really alive. A lot of these jobs are being taught by not trained guitarists, but by right. people who, you know, know how to strum a few chords. They're not really trained mm -hmm. in the way we are. And, you know, it's our hope it's my hope that uh, more and more of these positions will be taken by trained guitars 
Yeah, that was that was a big conversation that I had with Claire, um, Claire Callahan at UC. She actually, and I, I don't know what happened with this, um, with her retirement, or whether you know whether it's still there or what's going on. But she she pushed to start a music education program specifically to train guitarists to take those kinds of positions because at the time the OMEA, the Ohio Music Education Association, was looking at adding guitar to their activities and whatnot. And and I, I've I've had some interaction with those folks, and they they were they were looking at it as we are going to train band directors and choral directors and, and, and orchestra directors to, to add guitar to their programs. And, and, and I thought, you know, um, yeah, we're, I mean, I, I know that in Ohio, just in music education across the board, it's, it's, it's been a field of generalists. Like one of my best friends was a trumpet player who, you know, his entire career was teaching elementary school violin like strings string programs um which i guess is fine but it I, it just seems kind of a, a silly way to to do no, it especially I, I, as relates to guitar you're being kind i wouldn't characterize it as fine i think it's a terrible uh, <laughs> it's like someone's replaced in the wrong job you know and i've seen this my wife is a public school music teacher she teaches oh, okay uh, she teaches choral music and general music in a middle school now and has done an yeah. elementary level before and high school and um, what I've seen watching positions come and go in her district is uh, they will often hire a person uh, who's the wrong person for the job, um, not because they're willfully trying to undermine the quality of the education, but because they don't know and they don't have time or inclination to care enough. So, for instance, music is an umbrella uh, sort of category. And if there's a choral music or a vocal music opening and a person who's trained in band um, applies for it, and they happen to be better ca uh, candidate for, for whatever other reason, they're very likely to get hired, but they have no training in choral music, can't sing a note, don't play piano. You know, it's like, and the same will happen in the other direction. Like you just say, well, so now the trumpet guy's teaching the orchestra. Well, okay, or trumpets, trumpets in orchestra. And, and being a generalist is not an all bad thing, but um, I think the more specialists, you know, we have specialists. If you're going to have guitar ensembles being taught and they're being taught by a person who's not a guitarist, it's being taught by the there, wrong. There's some problems with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I like I said, I, I never, I didn't know what happened, what became of, of, of that push, um, for, for, for CCM, you know, with the, with the guitar education program and whatnot. I don't know of any programs in Ohio that are like, specifically teaching guitar classes. I don't, I don't know any guitarists that are teaching in secondary education. That, that's not, it doesn't seem like it's something happening here, but they do have, um, you know, guitarists can go and play and get adjudicated at the OMEA festivals and all of that. And it's like, it's, it seems like they're kind of doing it a little backwards to me. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it, it's odd. It's very strange. And I, yeah. I look like, look at places like Virginia and North Carolina and Texas and they're really, really killing it. You know, you know, I would say uh, I was on the board of directors of guitar foundation of America for many, many years. And um, one of the things that uh, they've gotten much, much better at and stronger at is supporting efforts in this arena, like this whole public yeah. education, public school education sure. thing. But one of the things I feel like they could and would do if they had the resources, this is comes down to money and being able to hire staff. But like you talk about those OMEA conventions, Ohio Music Educators Convention, right. 
and the related ones, say uh, um, string teachers and choral directors, and they have all these different conventions. Yep, yep. Well, um, the Guitar Foundation of America ideally would place really uh, exciting uh, presenters at every convention in every state, bringing ensembles from the best examples around the country and have them perform at these things. And then while they're there, you know, politicking, meeting principals, meeting superintendents, glad handing. It's like this is on the ground politicking. If it doesn't happen, it's not going to happen. And there's just aren't enough people who have the time and inclination to do it. Uh, at least hasn't happened here. But I have a feeling in other states, you know, it's just um, the chemistry worked a little better between the people involved. And there was more reception, you know, people were more receptive to it. And so uh, it took hold. But I do think in the long run, uh, it's irresistible. Uh, it's just it's taking a long time. It's taking long. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've always, I've always had my theories about how, you know, there, there's, there's a level of flakiness in, in the guitar world that, uh, you know, I think, I think the, for some reason, the instrument attracts a certain, <laughs> a certain element. And I'm not, I'm not excusing myself from this in any, <laughs> any, any way, but, uh, you uh -huh. know, it's, uh, it, Matanya used to talk about that a lot, and, and you know, it's just funny because he's one of the most just unique individuals I've ever met, and, and definitely, um, I, I wouldn't call him a flake, but uh, you know, if, if you're going to talk about the guitar attracting, well, let's say on the on the fringes, he, you know, <laughs> with large personalities. You know, there we go. I like it. Yeah, that's you know, always had a, again with the. Diplomacy there, man. I, 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 I need to hang out with you more often so, so I don't be so rude. <laughs> I had enough personality for three or four people. Absolutely. <laughs> and he wasn't afraid to wield it either. <laughs> I bring this up and I and I, I have to, you know, look in the mirror because here I am in semi-retirement where I'm teaching at Oberlin two days a week. Um, but you know, what's my why aren't I going around glad handing every superintendent in the state with my guitar in my hand? Well, you know, some people are going to be better suited to doing this than others, and I count myself as others. You know, <laughs> so but you know, maybe I'll I'll see the light and become inspired and try to fight that fight. But you know, it's it is a fight, and and, and until somebody fights that battle, um, you know, this is going to continue to unfold at a sort of painfully slow pace. Um, but in the meantime, so I just had this conversation with one of my students who's coming up on graduation soon about, you know, what do we do after? What kind of careers? And, you know, should I get the higher degree? What, what else should I do? And the, um, the subject of the public school opportunities come up. And um, in this case, uh, it, it's met with some, uh, you know, some brightened eyes and some receptive uh, responses and so, uh, but it does. Uh, the conversation always leads to what states in the country right, will you have to relocate to to take advantage of these opportunities? Yeah. And uh, I do think that that's just central to the conversation still. Yeah, I, yeah, I think so too. Yeah. So it, one of the things that that I've always you know admired about the way that you run your programs and and you know talking talking to your students. Um, talking to you, talking to other colleagues who, who know know things about you, is that was always something that that I heard about you doing. I mean, years ago, you know, talking talking realistically to your students about their careers, how to build their careers, and strategies for um, just getting on that path and what to do, what to do. And, and is that something? I mean, it. it 
Is that something that you came up with on your own, just well, thinking right. as, as your career was developing, like I like looking at these students and saying, I need I need to help them understand this stuff. To me, this is just as obvious as showing them where the notes are and how to. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you know, I understand that not all teachers are like this, though. No, you know, I, you know, I can't speak for other teachers, but it just seems to me like I'm teaching at the college level. Uh, it might be different if I were teaching all sort of, you know, kids are doing it advocationally, um, but are more primarily interested in something else. But I'm teaching, you know, what we call guitar performance majors. Right. Um, if I don't talk to them about how to use this information and the resources at their disposal when they're in college towards uh, building some kind of platform and, and, and a springboard for a career in the future, then I'm doing them a gross disservice. It's like, yeah. uh, you know, because those days are going to go by so quickly. Like when they're in college, they think they have all the time in the world. The next thing you know, you know, Hello. Yeah. they're they're a graduating senior. All their friends have already graduated. And they're like, ah, uh, you know, what am I <laughs> And so, so I tell you, my inspiration in this was my teacher when I was um, a graduate student. It was Tom Patterson at University. Okay, of yeah, another. I mean, he's he's like you in that respect as well. Yeah. Well, Tom um, and I didn't have any point of reference or comparison at that time. It's just what I took for granted. But Tom um, kind of took me by the hand when I was in my second year of my uh, graduate program, and. He showed me uh, an advert for the job at University of Akron. There were two openings that year, that one and one at uh, Memphis State. Okay. And he said, you should apply for these jobs. And I just looked at him like, you're out of your mind. Like, why? what makes you even think I'd be eligible? And I'm looking at it. It says, you need to have uh, college teaching experience to apply. And you need to have an international performing career. And I'm like, here I am, a second-year grad student, you know, like – like, why do you think I, it's like, what are you crazy? And so he said, no, you have to apply. It's just, you have to do it. Make your resume. I'll check it over and then make your, uh, you know, then it was cassette tapes, make your cassette tape, uh, app, you know, of your audition material and write a cover letter. And I want that in the mail by the end of the week. And so amazing. I did as I was told, you know, and <laughs> to my, uh, you know, shock and amazement, I got the call to go and uh, do the in-person interview in Akron. And, and so what did he know that you didn't know at that point in time? What, what, what did he, he, yeah. What did, what did he know that you didn't know? Well, I, I mean, I think at the time, maybe I was his graduate student or, or one of the two, like he probably said the same thing to the other guy, you know what I mean? Okay. <laughs> it was just like, he want, what he knew was that if his alumni, if his graduates didn't find their way into the world prof professionally and find success, then his program wasn't going to blossom and flourish. You know, okay. he needed to do whatever he could to see to it, to help his graduates succeed. And in doing so, um, sort of ensure his own future success. Okay. That makes sense. That, sure. that would be like the cynical read on it because right. it, it's self-oriented, but Tom's a very generous guy, you know, like yeah. he just said, look, man, you need this. You want to, you know, go, man, go, just do it. And right. so, and so I, you know, again, I was shocked to get the call. What, what was what was his answer to, you know, your reservations about like uh, they, they said they wanted college teaching job and somebody with an international performance. Did he say just don't pay attention to that? No, Does it matter? No, he said, you're my teaching assistant. You have okay. college experience. OK, and that semester I was in, I was responsible for undergraduate guitar ensemble. And I taught Perfect. some. Okay. Know, it was like one year, you know, like one semester. And then uh, I had gone 
I was living in Tucson. I had gone over the border into Nogales, the little uh, border town, and I took a guitar off a off a rack and I played a few chords, like trying an app. <laughs> Love it. Career. Fantastic. Now, also, the year before that, you know, I, I had an even bigger career than this. The year before that. I'd been invited by one of my classmates. I was living in Bellingham, Washington, where Tom was teaching then. It was okay. before he even got the Tucson job. I was studying with Tom in Bellingham. Um, British Columbia is just an hour drive north. Right. And this student was from Canada. So I drove. She invited me to play. I went to the church that her family attended. There you go. The now, nobody came to the concert. I mean, nobody, <laughs> not one. It was her and the, and the custodian. So I, the church, I took the guitar to her parents' house and I played in the in the kitchen. And oh, fantastic! So I had this international performance, okay. and and with that, I I could sleep at night. You know, looking. <laughs> I love it. I think it's great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I played, I played in an empty room in Korea. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I played it, I played at Ravenia. I think there were probably a half dozen people in the audience at Ravenia, but I played at Ravenia. What's that? No, but you were there and you played. I was there. Absolutely. That's no, great. <laughs> I, I love that. I love those kind of, the, you know, those unexpected stories like that, you know, something comes up like, it was it was a total accident, you know, and, and here you go. And that that determined the uh, trajectory of not just your life, but all of the people that, that, oh, that you then influenced as, as as their teacher after that. I mean, and it just it hinged on this. Hey, Tom saying, you know, yeah. you do that. And, and you could have just said no or right. I'm like, nah, he's crazy. And it wouldn't have happened, you know. Right. It, like it, it was just it becomes an inflection point, you know. Yeah, I love that. So, uh, I mean, I, I, I run into that so often talking to people. You know, it's it's wouldn't it be great if you know all these grandiose plans that we we create. You know, we just follow this step and this step and this step, and it leads to this. But that's not how it happens. It's always this strange pivot of something that you had no idea. You probably put it in the mail and thought, yeah, you know, they're never going to call me. And you well, know. of course, I never gave it another thought until the day I got a phone call and the guy said, "Can you be in Akron Friday?" And I was like, it's Thursday now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I, I love those stories. Those, those are my favorites. That's fantastic. But following up on, on your original question, I um, uh, took Tom's example and right. um, have never stopped sort of chasing my alumni with emails that have job opportunities. Like I'm right. always you know, I'm like, hey, maybe you'd be interested in this. You know, the people who graduated like 10 years ago, and I know I kind of know what they're doing. Maybe they'd be interested or, you know, uh, graduate teaching assistants are open and somebody, you know, could benefit from a program or or uh, some, you know, opportunity. Like, for instance, uh, one I, I'm really fond of is um, a gal who graduated from Oberlin a number of years ago, um, went to Eastman afterwards, got a master's. Uh, continued at Eastman a little further, but then sort of lost faith with the academic path and dropped out. And she had some roots in American uh, uh, folk music, roots music, and, huh. and played a little banjo and mandolin and formed a little sort of band that does that. She sings a little bit. And I, I just happened to catch a video of her on Facebook doing that. And she's like playing the banjo and singing. It was really delightful. Of course, she's a trained classical guitarist. Right. Um, and she was working at a music store that sells acoustic instruments. Well, I got a, um, an email 
that was obviously sent out an email list of everybody in the country who teaches guitar. This trio had lost their guitarist. It's really a banjoist. And they're all, they're Indiana University trained classical musicians, but they're playing chamber folk music and they sing and write their own music. And they wanted somebody who's wow. trained in classical music, but plays banjo and sings. And I thought, that's Michelle. That's <laughs> I ordered this to Michelle. She interviewed for the job. And suddenly she's playing 150 concerts on three continents with this band making CDs. It's like a huge Amazing. Oh, that's fantastic. But only because, you know, she was the right person for the game. Right. But, but um, again, it's like not maybe not everybody chases their their alumni. I don't know. But it just <laughs> seems crazy not to like, like to me, the people who study with me, I regard them as members of my permanent family. Like they're always part of my family. It's like, aren't you going to take care of yours? You know, these are my kids. I'm going to take care of them. Do you have a graduate program at Oberlin? <laughs> You've been screaming for one for years, but I don't think <laughs> that's fantastic. So, I mean, just out of curiosity, like, do you have any idea how many graduates over the years that you you've sent uh, out into the I, world? I don't have a number. You know, that would be an interesting number to have. It's not gigantic number. You know, it because, would have to be gigantic. You mean? The <laughs> who finished programs um well yeah 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 do it that way like if it's just masters it's not as many because over the years at university sure. of akron i very seldom had more than two or three like okay. once in a while i would have four of them but they tended to keep it down and like i could get two in there on kind of like it'd be a free ride for two guys and anyone after that was paying and so right. um it was harder to get them to come but um of course a lot more undergrads over the years Sure. Yeah. Sorry, I have a have a, have a, a canine companion barking in the background there. Um, hey guys! Hey guys! What are you doing? I don't know what they're barking at. <laughs> they've been they've been quiet all day long. So, um, and yeah, again, just kind of curiosity striking here. So you studied with Tom in Bellingham before you went to Arizona. Yes. Where was that? I never, I've never heard about this this part. Yeah. Uh, the, so Bellingham is in northern Washington, about right. an hour north of uh, Seattle. And yeah. what happened was when I was wrapping up my undergraduate degree at University of Hartford, Hart College, okay. um, I had met a guitarist who was very prominent in American guitar circles at that time named Michael Lorimer. Oh, sure. Okay. Um, now, Lorimer, sort of less visible in ensuing years, but um, at that time, he was touring and playing some concerts. And he always taught a master class at heart. And okay. I for him, and I thought he was a remarkable guy. And he was teaching at San Francisco Conservatory. Okay. At least I thought he was. And so I, I called there, and I got him on the phone. And he, he, at that particular moment, there was some sort of transition going on in the uh, teaching staff at the conservatory. And I don't remember the details at this point. But um, he told me what I really need to do. Like this guy tells me what I need to do um, is I need to go study with Tom Patterson and Bellingham. And so oh Patterson had worked with Lorimer in San Francisco before. And so he was basically one of Lorimer's alumni, you know? Okay. And so Tom had gotten this job at Western Washington and, um, you know, it was a relatively small program. I think Tom had like 10 or 12 students yeah. and, uh, you know, one or two grad students. 
And um, so he told me, I got to talk to Tom Patterson. He's the greatest. Uh, gave me the big heart. So, and back then, you know, there was no Google. It's like, what was I going to do? I, I called Tom yeah. Patterson. So you take whatever threads you're given and follow them. Sure, sure. You know? So I got Patterson on the phone and um, he was the best salesman I think I've ever met in my life. I mean, uh, he, uh, yeah. he could have talked me into anything on the phone. Right. It was unbelievable. Uh, it, he was uh, not only were his students the best students in the country and the program the most impressive and the place the most fantastic to live. He even said the babes are awesome. Nice. Yeah, that sounds like Tom. <laughs> 1980 or 1979. Oh, my gosh. And, um, and so I was like, my eyes were like saucers. I was like, oh, my gosh, I got to go here, you know. And uh, the next thing I knew, I was driving to Washington. Amazing. So did, did you did you finish a degree at heart before you went out there or did you just yeah, transfer? So I got okay. a bachelor's of music at heart. My teacher there is a guy named Alan Spreestersbach. Uh, okay. He was kind of the second guitar teacher on the staff. Dick Provost was the head of right. the Right. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had I had the guitar academic classes with Dick, guitar ensemble, okay. or, you know, pedagogy, fretboard harmony, all those different things they taught. Uh, but my private lessons were with Alan all the time. He was a terrific musician and a good guitar. He totally taught me how to play guitar because when I went to him, I was all but a beginner, you know. Okay. And so, um, so I wrapped it up there. I started with Tom and uh, Bellingham. And um, in the middle of the year, Tom was casting about for a better position. And he got hired at Tucson. And so we had a choice. We just go somewhere else, stay there and take our chances or follow him to Tucson. Sure. So of the entire student body of the entire guitar studio there three of us opted to follow him to tucson and we became the core of his first studio in tucson oh fantastic wow okay yeah and so and how did you end up at heart what was the story there well i, I grew up in connecticut so okay. uh, that was uh, kind of the local place but it was also one of the very few places where you could go to study classical guitar seriously right and um I had uh, I auditioned at two other places for it. Uh, I had d decided I didn't want to go to California. There was too much involved in travel costs because my family is all on the East Coast. And so um, it was Manhattan School of Music. Okay. Um, and uh, at that time, Bar Waco was on the faculty. Right. And Sharon Ispen. And um, uh, I think Carlos Barbosa Lima was on the faculty. Sure. And, uh, and then... Ithaca College, I applied to. That's where Ed oh. Flower taught. And oh, Ed, yeah, Flower, yeah. Ed Flower was my first guitar teacher. I studied with really? him. Really? Oh, my gosh. And uh, and then there was Hart College of Music. Okay. And so I, I had only started taking lessons, uh, gosh, it would have been like just a few months before the audition, just like we were talking okay. about earlier. Yeah. It's like, oh, possible guitar audition, I need lessons. I'm going to learn something. Which way does the neck point? You know? <laughs> I don't know. But, and what, what we, you, you'd played guitar before then, right? Or I played electric bass in, in rock and jazz bands, and I played a little okay. guitar, not very much. I mean, I wasn't, wasn't classical, classically. So, so then what was, what, what was your inter introduction to, to the classical guitar then? Uh, one of my uh, dorm mates at Simon's Rock played it. Uh, I went to this college named Simon's Rock. Gosh, yes. I yeah, know Simon's Rock. I was my mom forbade me from applying there because she didn't want to lose her son at the tender age of fifteen years old. So yeah, like I was, I was, I was pushing hard to go there. And uh, you knew about 
was. Yeah, it was a pretty unusual spot. So I was lucky. I got out of high school after the 10th grade and went to this oh, fantastic. Really great little liberal arts college in Massachusetts for a couple yeah. of years. And it was there that I met Ed Plow because he lived nearby. Okay. And um, so I was auditioning and taking lessons with him in preparation for my, you know, real conservatory auditions. And um, I knew when I when I auditioned at Manhattan, like I just didn't have a chance. Like there was just no point because <laughs> I could barely play anything. And so I I decided to forego auditioning on guitar at Manhattan and apply as a composition major. Okay. Because I had taken a course at, at, the, at Simon's Rock in musical composition, and I had the score of a string quartet I'd composed and a, and a few other pieces. Like, this is pretty substantial stuff for a kid, you know. Oh, fantastic. And so I went oh into gosh. a composition major, and um, I just had a terrible experience interviewing there. They just put me, raked me over the coals. It was uh. a, a, like... It was a, uh, an experience I, I should see therapy over. You know, it was just a <laughs> And then hearing at University of Hartford was much friendlier. You know, it's so nice. The guy I talked to was just very welcoming and, and friendly. And then I also did play guitar for them at Hart. I didn't get in to, to Hart as a guitar major when I auditioned. I didn't even get admitted. Huh. Uh, and I got in as a composition major. Wow. So I started my um, conservatory career as a composer and uh, a role which I abandoned after the second week of school because <laughs> in the uh, intervening like four months, I took four more months of lessons with Ed Flower and I figured out which way the neck pointed and I figured out the guitar's face out, not towards your spine. <laughs> you know? And I just started sorted out a few basics and I, I re-auditioned for uh, Dick Provost and Alan Spruce's book. And by then they were like, wow, you can actually play a little bit. And they were like, I don't know what was wrong with you, your audition, but there was something terribly wrong. <laughs> That's what they told me. There oh was my gosh. Terribly wrong. So, so I was a composition major at a major conservatory for two weeks. I, I take that to the... <laughs> Again, the, you know, these pivots, these, you know, like unexpected. Wow. You know, I, I would, that's, that's great. That's, uh, that's, that's fantastic. <laughs> I love, I love those kinds of stories. That was the end of composing until I, you right. know, <laughs> later in life. Yeah. Wow. So you must, you, I mean, I, there's no, it's a silly thing to say. Of course you worked your ass off. You worked really hard. Well, when I got to Hart, I was a transfer student because I'd had two years of college, right. but it wasn't music college. So I ended up getting sure. like one year worth of transfer, but I had to go to Hart for three years. But that meant that in three years, I had to graduate as a senior, you know, in the course of three years, I had to get good enough to play wow. a junior recital and a senior recital. And I was a beginner, you know. Oh, but, my gosh. But I was academically a little ahead. So I had sure. that coursework under my belt. So... Um, you know, I didn't really worry about it too much at the beginning because everything was so new to me. My head was spinning. Of by, by about halfway through my second year, I asked Alan if I could audition to play my junior recital instead of like a sophomore jury. Sure. And they said, sure. The only difference is how much music you have to play. You know, they made it kind of, of accessible to me. And I said, look, academically, I can do it. It lines up. It's just if you guys approve it or not. And um, they ended up approving it. So... So I did it like a little accelerated in a way. Yeah. You know, and it, it makes sense to me, you know, your experience as a student obviously was, you know, go get it. Like you, you were, oh, yeah. you were a go getter and you were going and getting it, which informed your experience, like the things that you tell your students 
you know, you, you're, you're, you're speaking from your truth on that, you know, you know, you know what that, that experience oh, is. Absolutely. But you know, it was never, uh, it was never like, um, standing outside myself, looking in and saying, well, I need to be this kind of person in order to succeed in the world. You know, it was just like, right. you are who you are, you know, you just follow your inner muse. And the truth is like babies, you know, we're, we tend to be so, uh, like concerned about ourselves at the exclusion of all other things, you know, <laughs> the whole world revolves around us, you know? I'm going to write this down. The next time somebody calls me a narcissist, I'm going to say no. <laughs> the younger you are, the more it's true. I mean, yeah. At least it was for me. And so, like, I don't yeah. know, like, what other people were doing. I don't know what they were thinking. But you were too busy going going for it. Yeah. My perception was that I was the worst player in the school. Like, I felt that without question, they all had more experience. They had more um, you know, sort of physical skill on the instrument. They knew more music. Right. They've been doing it longer. And so I had to scramble. You know, I worked really hard because I just felt in my bones that if I didn't, I wouldn't be able to make it because they were right. just better than me. It's not that I wanted to be better than them, but I wanted to be at least as good as some of them, you know? Right. It's like I wanted right. to be sure. with my with my peers. And so I scrambled and scrambled until I could do it. Now, I wasn't a sophisticated musician, you know, when I graduated. I was very... Um, kind of a dumb musician, but I got my hands to be able to play the pieces, you know, right. well enough that I was able to fulfill the requirements and graduate. And then uh, Tom was, uh, you know, uh, then on the graduate level, it was like a uh, truly another level of music instruction because Tom was giving me, maybe I was ready for it then, but he was giving me a lot of uh, inspiration about musical interpretation and about beautiful sound and vibrato, just a sort of nuances of former playing. And I was ready for it at that time. And yeah. I think he's, he's got one of the finest sounds I've ever heard. Yeah. Like, he's got beautiful sounds. He, know, so he knows how to, he knows how to make. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's great. That's awesome. I mean, this, this is, yeah, I never knew any of this about you. This, yeah, so it's a backstory. I, I, I love hearing this. It's great. Yeah. So we, we do, we have to talk about Julian Bream and, and, and I'm in my brain right now, I'm putting this together as like, you know, you're this scrappy go-getter who makes stuff happen. So you just called Julian Bream and said, Hey, come to my thing. So, yeah. So I've seen Bream perform um, as you know, most of us had, I mean, Bream was touring. Yeah. And I'd seen him uh, play out in, uh, I think it was British Columbia when I was at Bellingham. And, and um, you know, he, he was always my hero. I mean, from the yeah. beginning, uh, there was always just Segovia, Williams and Bream uh, growing up. And uh, I loved the Williams records, but I really loved the Bream records. You know, like I just lived for the way he, he played. And um, fascinated by the Segovia records, but didn't really understand them. You know, like, mm -hmm. like I, I heard what he did. I could feel it, but I didn't get it. Um, but Bream, I totally got, it, you know, yep. and. Uh, you know, it has to do with my generation and what have you. But um, so the GF, when I was uh, in negotiation to do the GFA at University of Akron, this was um, in the run up to 1988. The, the okay. festival was in 88. Um, I knew at that time that Bream had never played at a GFA. And uh, I because I just wanted it to be special. You know, I wanted it to be something everybody remembered. And there were a number of things that I sort of seized on that I thought would be really memorable if I were to do them. And one of them was to have Bream as a headliner. And of course, I didn't call Bream. You have to call his management. You know? <laughs> Bream had always eschewed these kinds of events. It's like he didn't want to be surrounded by people poking at him and asking about his fingernails. And he just didn't want of to course. get in. He was like used to playing for general audiences and being regarded as kind of a superstar, you know. And so being in the guitar thing, it was a little outside his comfort zone. 
at least that's where he was in his career at that time. Yeah. And um, so I was surprised when the management, after talking to him, got back to me and said, he'll do it. Um, however, his that easy <laughs> his was going to be, you know, like, oh, my gosh, his fee. Say it again. Wait, did I get that right? Right. The fee was uh, really high. And and I thought, OK, we have to make this work. It's like we just have to meet the fee. If we can get the fee, we get Bream. If we get Bream, it's going to be amazing. So, right. so um, you know, I did some work behind the scenes in Akron. I found some money from somewhere, talked to GFA. You know, everybody's sort of willing to go in a little longer, or a little harder. Yeah. So um, we decided to book Bream. And then around that, we booked a pretty stellar cast at that moment, uh, including uh, Elliot Fisk and um, Jorge Morel and um, huh. do you know do you, when when you were booking those guys did you say hey Bream's coming I mean did that help kind of propel the, uh, the you know energy? I don't remember that sequence that's that's really uh, yeah. sort of the, the guts of it I, that would be like because I, I I could see something happening where you know you you're talking to somebody and they they're maybe not interested and you say well you know Bream's going to be here oh suddenly they they might be a little bit more interested you know. <laughs> There might be a world in which that's true, but you know, I'm talking about the GFA. Nobody says no. To <laughs> <laughs> it's like, good point. Like, yeah, I had, good point. I had Oscar Gilia on the on the roster, and uh, ironically, um, he got caught at the Canadian U.S. border. Something about his visa his wasn't right. His uh, and he couldn't uh -huh. get into the country. He got stuck just days before his concert, and so at one of the receptions after a concert at the GFA. I stood up, tapped on a glass, got everyone's attention. I said, I need a headliner for tomorrow night. Ha! Come talk to me. Can you imagine how many friends I suddenly had? <laughs> <laughs> Who played the concert? So in the end, I, I gave a split concert because really we had so much talent there. You know, you couldn't. Uh, so Bill Kanengeiser was there with the L.A. Quartet. And L.A. Quartet played an afternoon concert, but I had heard Bill play solo, and Bill had just won the Concert Artist Guild competition. Oh, yeah, okay. It happened that year, so he was suddenly, like, hot. And I had hired Jorge Morel to do a split concert with David Tannenbaum with the University of Akron Symphony Orchestra, in which Jorge Morel played his own concerto, and Tannenbaum played the Hans Werner Henze concerto. Oh, my gosh! Yeah, so that happened. And so I asked Jorge, would you like to play a half a solo program? <laughs> Those Bill and Jorge split program. Fantastic. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> on, on a day's notice. <laughs> you know, that was an amazing event. And, you know, we, all the evening concerts took place in the Akron Civic Theater. Uh, do you okay. know that? Uh -huh, that absolutely. One of the very few theaters in the country that was uh, a, a so-called atmospheric theater. It's it's got a ceiling that's got some sort of mechanism or some sort of electronics to yes. make it look like twinkling stars and literally yes. cloud floating by over your head as the yes. music is playing. I went I went to a conference there once and they we had a tour of of that and it was yeah it was mind bending yeah yeah and it's just got every baroque detail like over the top the curtains oh the, the gold leaf, the, the cherubs and it's just like unbelievable and so this was an unusual environment for gfa and everybody just really loved it and so um that was uh that was a little bit of the story of the eight yeah eight, right? and how long i mean how long did you how long did the planning for that take? Yeah, so the planning is funny because you know, since I did it again in 05, <laughs> I look back at what I had to do in 88, it's just hilarious because we had no cell phones, of course. We had right. no oh computers. God. 
we didn't even have word processing. You know, right. it was a typewriter. Typewriter. It was a typewriter. What happened is I would, and I was determined to have uh, a program book for this festival that would be the keepsake program book of GFA festivals that no one would ever throw away. And one of the elements of that was that I wanted it perfect bound. If Perfect binding means that it's got a square edge. So when you yes. set it on your bookshelf, you can read the edge of yes. it. Yes. So it's oh not like sitting in there. You all wanted it to be like a book. And, and I wanted to put a lot of information in the program book, including um, uh, biographical pieces on every composer, every living composer who had a piece program that week, uh, articles about every guitar builder whose instrument was on stage that week, you know, like lengthy wow. bios about, you know, about the Civic Theater itself and about Akron University, about all those things and about all the staffing. And then, of course, um, histor historical pieces about GFA competitions beforehand. They'd never done that before, listing every prize winner of every competition of every year and putting oh my gosh. photos. Like, I really, it was a big book. And uh, I wrote this whole thing longhand. Took it to the secretary in the music office, type it on a typewriter, and then I would take the typewritten thing down to the local printer, and they would do offset printing and type it, and uh, and and then print it, and then I'd have to check the proofs and make sure there were no mistakes. This was a laborious process, wow. but it's not like it's not like we know any other process, you know? It's right, of course, yeah. If only had a cell phone, it hadn't been invented yet, you know. So. Uh, it was a, it was a long and every all the phone calls are analog. You know, you just no email. So uh -huh. it took a long time. But, you know, things happened then. It's not like nothing happened. Amazing. You, you didn't that. sleep. That didn't happen. I'm, I'm sure true. there was no there was no sleep during that time. I mean, that's why younger guys do this. You know, <laughs> <laughs> now, when, when you did it again in 2005 was I mean, was it so different that, that I mean, you must have been informed by your experience in 88 to like, oh, yeah, I know how to do this. This is this is easy. Well, you, know, like. <laughs> you know, first of all, I didn't um, lobby them. What happened in 05 was the person they had hired or had a the person who had agreed to host the festival backed out late in the okay. game. And so right. it was literally, I had a like eight months lead time or something Oof. or even less than that. Well, no, maybe it was a year. I had about a year. Yeah. And um Normally, you would have two years for this. Right. And so, I, and I said to them, like I, like I told you earlier, I, I need carte blanche. I need to run this festival like it's my festival. I don't want to have to go to committee every time I make a decision because this thing is going to have to happen fast. In eight months, so, yeah. I mean, so, you know, I talked to my wife. She said, if you do this, we're going to get, have to get a divorce because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I said, oh, please, you know, please. So, uh, luckily, she uh, signed off on my basically disappearing for a year, you know. Right. And, um, and so then I immediately um, called all the people I decided I want to have as headliners. I, actually, what I did is I asked them to send me the program books from the previous five years because I hadn't attended every one. Smart. Because I wanted to make sure I didn't duplicate you know, a lot right. of the programming. And, and maybe there's someone who's fantastic who played five years ago. We can feature him again. Or somebody sure. who played afternoon who's maybe ready for uh, evening feature concert at this point. But, and I also wanted to see, make sure I was bearing in mind who were the winners of the uh right. maybe feature one so um so i sort of absorbed all that information and uh started making calls and uh i thought we we had what was a, a superb event you know did you come to 05 
I did not, and I don't remember why. Um, yeah, I think I think I was out of town that week for some reason. Eugene came up, I remember that, and Stanley was there, and they hung out and, and talked, and I, I, I heard about it. But yeah, there was something going on that, that year that, I mean, why wouldn't I be there? <laughs> but I think I was out of town, yeah. I mean, we had, um, Bar Waco was our sort of yeah. top headliner that year, and then we had Paul Galbraith and David Tannenbaum and uh, Raphael Smits and... Um, um, uh, oh, I know. Roland Deans was supposed to play. That's right. That's right. And Roland got sick. Is, is was, that when he first had had his, well, his first I heart don't attack? Want to say when his health problems began, but yeah. his health problems flared up that year in such a way okay. that he could withdraw, and it was last minute. So once again, I was confronted with the last minute. <laughs> ting, 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 ting. I need a headliner. <laughs> so, uh, actually, I, I put Martha Masters in. Uh, Martha hadn't been featured. You know, she'd been. Uh, doing a lot of the work for GFA at that point already, yeah. really, um, really working hard for it, but she hadn't really been featured. And I thought, let's just put Martha on stage. She plays great. Yeah. So um, it was my pleasure to feature her. And you know, there were a lot of, one of the things I, I did is a lot of chamber music and a lot of uh, different kinds of music, not all just soloists playing the Segovia repertoire, the Bream repertoire. Nice. It's just really a wide array of things, and I was really proud of that. We had um, a Robert Bartel play a Baroque lute concert. Oh, yeah. And I had uh, Dominic Frasca, my old uh, alumnus, yeah, from sure. playing his uh, electric modified 10-string guitar uh, in all original music. And uh, I had uh, the Nibori Guitar Orchestra from Japan, uh, right. like 30 or 40 guitarists dressed identically, uh, playing the most perfect guitar ensemble you've ever heard of. With this yeah. And uh, it was really a great, great event. But maybe the most memorable thing of that whole festival was Bill Kanengeiser's comedy routine, which he did at the end of it um, after hours. And I, I got to tell you, I negotiated with him for weeks to try to get him to do that. He kept saying no. And I kept going back to him and said, Bill, you've got to do this thing. It was like an official event. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I, said, I'm pay you. I told him I was paying him a full fee, but no guitar. Leave the guitar home. I said, I want to f I'm paying you a full fee to do a comedy routine. Amazing bars a million times. Oh yeah, yeah, it's it's outrageous. Impersonations of that guy. He's hilarious. And I thought, let's just feature him. I mean, give him the stage for goodness sake. Did, did you get any resistance on that from anybody? Just from Bill. Okay. <laughs> But you know, eventually he caved in and he decided to do it. And then I heard from a few people in his immediate orbit in, in Los Angeles that that was the worst summer of their lives as he was preparing to do that, as they had to listen to him practice his routines over and over. But Oh, uh, my God. That's amazing. That's was, I don't think I've ever laughed harder in my life. I mean, it was. He, he's hilarious. He is absolutely outrageously hilarious. The thing that could only happen for that audience, because he's doing very, you know, the specific people he's impersonating, only the people in that room would know who they are. You know, oh my gosh, it was just it was great. So that was a nice one. <laughs> And of course, that wow. was the, the first year we had the youth competition. So you know, right. a lot of things going on that year. Yeah. So when are you doing the next one? <laughs> <laughs> now I'm deferring to the younger guys. You know, when I when I said I would do it, you know, um, I think it was Doug James was on the um, on the committee, and he was yeah. calling me up, Steve. I, I, I you know, I want to ask you something. Please sit down before I ask. You know, awkward <laughs> <laughs> position. You know, and I said. When I finally said, yes, I would do it, he said, you're going to be in a very small club because very few people have done that twice, you know. Right. And to this day, I think Andrew's I can't think I can't think of um, anybody that I know that's done it twice other than you. Um, 
Yeah. Um, there's one other, I think, that's done a three, but, you know, not very many. Oh have gosh. Multiple times, but maybe, Carl, it's your, it's your year. You should do it. Uh, <laughs> I'm no longer affiliated with any academic institutions, yeah. so I'm, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. That's, you know, I, I did one small festival, actually, the, the, the one that you, you, you played at, and, and we had some of your students participate in. Um, and it was it was nothing of anything like the scope of a GFA. Um wow. And it was it was a, it was a real eye opener in terms of the amount of work that that kind of event takes to put together. You know, it was, it was astonishing it is, to me. It's true. It's, it's just tons of administrative work. But you know, at its core, I regard it as just throwing a party and inviting all your friends. Yeah, that's really what it is. It was a blast. I mean, I, I really it was it was a great thing, and it was. But you know, I, the, the the it was all the behind behind the scenes, like you said, the administrative stuff. But it was it was mostly like the, the communicative stuff with my colleagues at the university, that yeah. was the most frustrating part of it, yeah. you know, and, and, or, or it's, or it's not fun. Yeah. <laughs> so it did. It, it's, but it, it was, but it was, yeah, it was really interesting, but I'm not, yeah, I'm not doing a GFA. <laughs> <laughs> so Steve, it's been great talking to you. Do you have anything coming up you know, over the next few months, year, well, anything that we should know about that's going on? Just like clouding my mind and, and pushing all of the thoughts out is the just unbelievably delightful image of having face-to-face -face lessons with my students. Yes. I mean, I just haven't done it. So You haven't? Lessons. No. Oh, my gosh. Well, I should say uh, one guy from Oberlin has been driving down over the summer a little bit. Okay. Uh, but, you know, most of my students don't live nearby. So uh, they come in for the Oh, and day. they got sent home, of course, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we did in-person lessons last year, but we we're all unmasked, you know, and, and everything was different last year. So this year, in-person lessons, no masks. All the students will be there. No one will be on gap year waiting for pandemic to end or on remote. You know, like, because I was teaching studio class with the laptop open. So, like, the students who were remote are watching on the computer and the ones who are there are on the stage. And I had to, you know, I'm not the only one. We're all dealing with this. But yeah. um, uh, I'm just so excited to have the uh, educational environment back to normal and we can just sort of do what it is we do, have concerts with audiences. You know? so, yes. Yeah, I yeah, that, I I thought about that the other day. I was thinking, yeah, I mean, because the guitar society is getting started back up, and we're we're actually going to have people playing in concert halls, and I'll be able to go go listen to a guitar in a concert hall again. It's an amazing thing. So, yeah, so, so this is a really an upbeat uh, sort of background for uh, the oncoming fall. Yeah, well, that's 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 exciting. I'm 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 happy to hear that. Uh, yeah. Yes, thank you so much. I, I would love to have you back because I'm sure that we just scratched the surface. You just um, say the word. I'll yeah. be happy to do it. It's uh, awesome. I think what you're doing is really exciting. I'm honored to be a part of it. I really appreciate you being here and giving, giving us your time. And, and uh, we will definitely have to get you back. Um, and right. uh, well, yeah. Thank you again. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. This is Carl Wolwind of Columbus Classical Guitar. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Guitar on My Knee podcast. For more information and past episodes, please visit columbusclassicalguitar.com or Carl Wolwind Guitarist on Facebook. <laughs>